Let's make our way to 2 Corinthians. We're going to pick up in chapter 5 this morning. And we're actually going to take the next two weeks to cover uh, chapter 5. There's some uh, rather large concepts in here, some things that we don't want to just fly over. And so we're going to look to get through the first eight verses of 2 Corinthians 5 as you guys head that direction this morning. Let me just mention first, though, as you guys are finding it in your Bible, that Corinth as a city was established originally along a very popular trade route. So if you consider the Roman Empire, uh, Corinth was located in southern Greece. And as they're located there at the southern end of Greece in this region known as Achaia, uh, they found themselves positioned on what's known as an isthmus. That's a, a narrow strip of land with water on either side. And so on the one side of Corinth, you've got the Aegean Sea. On the opposite side, you've got the Ionian Sea. And what makes this valuable is that it became a very popular trade route. So in that day, if you didn't want to sail along the very treacherous southern end of Greece, you would actually go into Corinth and they would literally take your ship and pick it up and carry it the one mile to the other side. Now, uh, you might wonder why not build a canal. And actually, if you go there to this day, about 130 years ago, the Corinthian Canal was constructed. And so today, you can pass through over the water. But at that time, they didn't have the means by which to construct this very uh, complicated canal structure. So what happened in Corinth is because of this uh, trade and because of this location that they had along the route as they became very prosperous. You can imagine all the merchandise that was traded and exchanged, all the retail that was taking place there in Corinth. And so the reality is for them as a city and for them as a people, they were exceedingly prosperous. They were doing far better than surrounding areas that were much more poor. And so prosperity and comfort was really what defined the lifestyle of the Corinthians. Not that any of us would know anything about living in a land of prosperity and comfort whatsoever. So I'm just trying to paint the picture uh, in your mind. You can imagine what it might look like to be in a spot where the other areas, the lands, the nations, were not doing nearly as well as what these Corinthians were. Now, we get to the Apostle Paul, the one who planted the church in Corinth. And Paul actually understood very well where they were coming from because it was similar to where Paul had come from. His given name was Saul, and he grew up in an area uh, called Tarsus, this Roman province city, which was also very wealthy. And so as Paul grew up in this uh, area, what he was, uh, what happened to him, because he showed great promise as a young man growing up in a Hebrew household, is he was given the best education. He was trained in a Hebrew underneath a guy named Gamaliel, the, one of the top teachers in all of Israel. And so Paul had a tremendous education. He was also very learned in Greek culture, in Greek art, in Greek poetry. And so Paul has this dynamic background, but he's also been raised in such a way where his talents were noticed early on, and he actually elevated successfully up into this number one organization in all the Hebrew religion known as the Sanhedrin. Only 70 men were asked to be a part of this for all of Judaism. They made decisions concerning the Jewish faith. And Paul, as a young man, was actually elevated into a position as a member of the Sanhedrin. And Paul's life, his trajectory was one you would go, man, he has got it all going on. This young man is a mover and a shaker until his life was moved and his entire existence was shaken on a road to Damascus where his intentions were to actually sentence Christians to death, to have them jailed 
and thrown into prison, perhaps even killed, until he was on his way to Damascus with a letter from the high priest that said, you can throw anyone in jail that you want to that's a part of this new way, these Christian believers. And it was there he met Jesus. It was there a bright light knocked him off his horse, and and Paul's life as he knew it was redirected, but also his eternity as he knew it was forever redirected. His eternal destination was changed. And I bring all this up to say, um, this was very troubling for the Corinthians to wrap their minds around. You see, they lived in a place of comfort and prosperity, and their big hang-up with Paul wasn't his calling, it wasn't his writing or his education, it was his suffering. Why on earth do we have to watch Paul suffer? And then, to make matters worse, we're called in chapter 11 of his first letter, what Paul says is, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So here we're called to imitate Paul, who's suffering in similar ways to what Jesus would suffer, and for many of them, it was just too much. We cannot get ourselves out of a life of comfort, out of a life of ease, considering that we might have to suffer like Paul, who's suffering like Jesus. Now this entire mindset was actually brought about and discussed in Matthew chapter 19. As Jesus was approached by another successful young man, who is known in our scriptures as the rich young ruler. He was a lawyer, and he came up to Jesus, and he says in Matthew 19, verse 16, Behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Seems like a good question. And he said to him, this is Jesus responding, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is, God. And So Jesus wants to make it very clear to this young man who he's talking to. When he said, You've called me good, What you're in effect calling me is, I am God in the flesh. And so he brings this about. He says, but if you want to enter into eternal life, keep the commandments. Well, that seems easy enough. And the young man responds, which ones? That's another good question. How many of these commandments do I need to keep, Lord? And Jesus responds in verse 18. It says, well, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, All these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? He's checking boxes. He's like, man, I got it going off. Haven't killed anybody today. Haven't lied. I'm doing pretty good. And Jesus responded, if you want to be perfect, the word could also be complete. Go and sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Verse 22, and then the young man heard that saying, and he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. The young man heard the words of Jesus while he was uh, thinking he was doing pretty well, thinking that he was perfect as it was related to the law. What Jesus did is he hit on a a sore spot for him, and that was his wealth. He had a tremendous amount. He was living a very comfortable life. If Jesus told him to go and sell everything, and he only had a little, it wouldn't be that big a deal. I don't have much, Lord, so here you can have it. But for this young man, he had a tremendous wealth. And so he left there very distraught and saddened. And it wasn't because of his wealth that Jesus picked on him. It was because this is where he actually had his heart that existed. His heart was set upon his comfort, upon his ease, much like these Corinthians. And so as Paul is addressing them, what he wants to get in their minds, he actually starts this in chapter 4, verse 18, where we ended last week. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Paul's trying to get their mindset 
shifted from the things that are temporary, the things that they can see with their physical eyes, because the reality is these things are temporary. They're not going to last. And so he begins then in verse 1 by saying, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed. And I'll stop right there for a minute. So Paul immediately jumps into talking to them about their physical bodies. And what he refers to it as is a tent, this earthly house, this tent that we live in. Now this would have been something that Paul knew a little bit about because he was a a tent maker also by trade. He used his uh, tent making trade to help pay for the ministry. And so Paul's painting this picture where he compares our body to a structure that is only temporary. Now even for those of you that love tent camping and and you love to go out and be in the wilderness, what you know is these structures are not permanent. Nobody sets up the tent and goes, that's it, I'm done forever. No more tents needed for me. Even the absolute best of tents, like the one I put at the bottom of the screen. I mean, if you're glamping like that, even glamping like that, you don't look at that structure and go, this is it. Nothing's ever going to destroy or take down this bad boy. I'm staying here forever. And this is what Paul is trying to get them to understand. That any tent is at best temporary. So for years of my life, um, I listened to and considered myself uh, what is known uh, as a parrothead. Loved Jimmy Buffett. Loved Jimmy Buffett music. Traveled all over uh, to concerts, uh, most of which I remember, some of which I do not. And so this was uh, my one of the things that I really enjoyed. And in one of his songs, uh, this is what he said. Um, I'm growing older, but not up. My metabolic rate is pleasantly stuck. Let the winds of change blow over my head. I'd rather die while I'm living than live while I'm dead. And last week on Saturday, at the age of 76, uh, he is dead. (laughs) And yet this was his philosophy on life, and he lived it out to the fullest. And so do we oftentimes. We live a lifestyle that we are striving to live this life until the very bitter end with no consideration on what happens after this. And what he sold in large part was this mindset, this idea of escapism. That if I can just escape my situation, I can go off into this magical fantasy land where I can be a pirate or a beach bomb or whatever it happens to be. I don't have to face reality. I'd rather die while I'm living than live while I'm dead. But the reality for each of us that we have to face is it's never long enough. It doesn't matter if it's 76 years or 86 years or 106 years. It never feels like it's enough. And even for Jimmy, here's the truth. If you're going to live this life like you're uh, you're living it to the very end, getting every last drop, you better live it like Jimmy. I got to tell you, it ought to be boats and planes and cars and parties and margarita machines. Let it rip. But at the end of it, it's all going to wrap up. It's going to come. To the end. It doesn't matter how hard you go for it. And so at some point, no matter how much we want to consider it, we must, we have to face reality. And reality, at least for me, it stares back at me every morning when I look in the mirror. Because this thing is breaking down, baby. It's breaking down at a rapid pace. This tent is being destroyed. Every time I look, I'm like, oh man, what happened to that guy? And so this is the reality that we live in that we must consider. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, here's where Paul goes with it. We have a building from God, 
a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And so Paul says, look, while the tent is being destroyed, what we know is there's something better that we as believers, as followers of Jesus, have waiting for us. In fact, what Jesus says to his followers in John chapter 14 is this. I'll pick up in verse uh, 1. He says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And in my Father's house there are many mansions, and if it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I am, where I go, you know, and the way you know. So Jesus' encouragement to his followers is, I'm going to go away, but I'm not going away forever. I'm going to go away and actually prepare a house, a dwelling is the word. The word mansions might have a little number beside it in your Bible. And if you look at the margins, it will say literally means dwellings. What Jesus is communicating is that for our soul and our spirit, the part of us that lives on, the part of us that is eternal, right now where we're at, we're carried around by these tents, by these mortal bodies. This is the medium by which we communicate. We know one another through this flesh. But what makes us us isn't our flesh. We all know this. We go to a funeral, we see the body in the casket, and what we know is the person that we had a relationship or a connection with, yes, that's uh, the body we used to talk to, but they're not there anymore. They have gone somewhere. Something has happened. They have moved from this temporary body into something more permanent, hopefully. And so the, the reality is we've got a glorified body that's actually waiting for us who believe in Jesus as our Christ, as our Messiah. And the glorified body is far more superior than the temporary body. It can do uh, things that these temporary bodies that were just made to exist on this earth cannot. And one of the spots in Scripture, if I skip over to John chapter 20, verse 19, Jesus has been crucified, he's now resurrected, and he has appeared before several of his disciples. And in verse 19, and then the same day, that evening being the first day of the week, so Sunday, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for the fear of the Jews. And so Jesus has been crucified. They're scared to death. They're getting drug off the cross themselves. And so they're huddled all together. They got the door shut. They're hunkered down hiding. And uh, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And so as the doors are shut in a locked room, Jesus just appears. He literally just walks through in his glorified body. The walls didn't hold him back. None of these things could hold him back because the glorified bodies are far superior than these terrestrial bodies. They can go places and do things that our earthly bodies cannot do. As Paul was trying to get them to understand this just a little bit in 1 Corinthians, in the first letter he would write, he says in uh, chapter 15, verse 35, uh, someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with that, and with what body do they come? Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But verse 38, God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. And so what Paul's trying to articulate is, look at nature. If you take a small seed, a little seed of grain, you go out and you plant it in the dirt. And as you plant it in the dirt, it has to die. It breaks apart. 
and the roots go down and what comes up out of the ground, it doesn't look anything like that little ugly brown speck of grain. It's completely different. The, the glorified body looks entirely different. And so what he's trying to get them and us to understand is you all are ugly little specks of grain. Don't you feel better about you right now? So this is us, but these bodies that we see, they're not what we're going to have that God has planned for us for all of eternity. It, it's going to be so magnificent. I has not seen nor heard the things the Lord has planned for us. And so Paul's using this as an example. But in verse 2, he continues and he says, For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. In this tent currently, we are groaning. It is a struggle for these earthly bodies. A little over a year ago, we had the opportunity to take um, the youth group to Camp Eagle Sky, which is south of St. Louis. Beautiful church camp that's located down there in the foothills of the Ozark Mountains. And as we went, uh, Angela, because we had far more girls than boys, she had the, the dubious honor of getting to be their counselor, while uh, I had the big-time job of watching after the five-year-old, uh, Madeline, and making sure she didn't die. So that was my job. She felt like I could handle that. And so while the other kids were in church camp, Madeline and I, uh, we toured around in the golf cart, but it didn't take long for her to spot uh, what I have up here on the screen, the water slide that existed out. Uh, up in the trees and went out into the lake. And the water slide was constructed like none I'd ever seen. It was two cables that went down into the water and then a tarp that was basically hung between the cables and it fired you off over the top of the lake. And so um, just like the woman in Luke 18 that annoyed the judge until finally uh, the judge responded, this is her wanting dad to take her on the water slides. Dad, 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 dad. So eventually, uh, I do what dads do. I give in. Like, I can't handle it. We're, I'm taking it to the water slide. And we were the first people of that camp as they turned that water slide on to make our way up to the top of this slide structure. And as I get up there, uh, there's a young man operating the slide. Uh, he looks like he could have been at least the ripe age of 12 or 13. But he had no idea how this thing worked. And I said, hey, buddy, uh, do you have any suggestions? Because my daughter wants to race me. And his great word of wisdom was, yeah, just grab that bar and pull. Like, well, grab bar and pull. I can handle this. And so, uh, being a little bit competitive, even into my early 40s, I'm going to show my daughter how you race against dad. So I grabbed the bar and I pulled with everything I had. And I took off down this water slide. And it took maybe two or three milliseconds for me to realize I was in a lot of trouble. In fact, as I'm making my way down this tarp structure, the sound of the tarp underneath me, it sounded like, like this is going really bad. I was going fast enough, though, I couldn't actually sit up because of the G-forces. And so I'm thinking, this is going to end really, really wrong. And, and as I saw daylight, in fact, my worst nightmare happened. Uh, I shot out of there like I was uh, coming out of a cannon over the top of the water. And I remember my legs going up, and I'm like, this cannot be the best way to land. And I landed, and my body was impacted with my bottom and my lower back, and it all went numb. And so my thought was uh, two things. Either one, I just broke my back based upon how my legs feel, or I gave myself an enema, or both. And so as the bubbles kind of came out around me, I knew that the second one wasn't it. I was safe from the enema piece, but my lower back uh, hurt tremendously. I couldn't feel my legs. Thankfully, they put a 
life vest on us where I was just able to float. And I remember a little guy that was over on one of the other lake uh, toys, he just looked at me and said, Are you okay, mister? Like, uh, I groaned like what Paul is talking about right here. Because my earthly tent, it's not cut out for that anymore. It turns out uh, in your uh, 40s and over 200 pounds, you're not meant for those kind of things. And so as Madeline swam over, she said, Dad, can we do it again? No, you cannot. I, I am never, ever riding the slide from hell ever again. But you can ride it. And so over and over again, actually, this picture on the bottom, you see her little body spitting out from that because uh, she just wrote it over and over again. It was no problem for her. But what you realize is as we get older, um, these tents can't take what we used to put them through, right? That, that one of the blessings, if there is a blessing to getting older, and as these tents break down, I don't know about you, but I can't wait to be with Jesus in my in my glorified uh, mansion, in my tab, in my in my temple that He has prepared for me. And so as we go and as we grow, it's a beautiful thing about older folks is they get more and more excited about getting to be with Jesus because in these tents we own. these things hurt, they don't function or act or respond like what they used to. Paul continues here in verse 3, he says, If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked, for we who are in this tent grown, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. And so Paul is referring to when we leave this body, he says we're not going to be disembodied spirits, we're not going to be naked. And this really refers to a philosophy that these Greek philosophers had in this day that uh, the body essentially was uh, binding our spirit, that our body is merely holding us back. And they couldn't wait to be uh, disembodied and just be out there in the spirit realm, naked and free, just running around. But uh, what it led to is because this was their philosophy, something more sinister. Um, If what happens in this body doesn't matter whatsoever, then it doesn't matter what you do in the body, you see. And so for the Greeks and their culture, they would just let it rip. I mean, anything you want to do inside these bodies, just make it happen. It doesn't matter. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And so it led to them feeling like there was no consequences for anything that happened. And what Paul wants to make clear is um, to be absent from this body means we'll be present with the Lord in our new body. And and we're not going to be unclothed. We're not going as the... Buddhists would like to say into an eternal state of nothingness out there in the ether, that we're actually going to be more clothed. We're going to receive our heavenly body. And and in fact, Paul, again, in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, trying to explain this to them, he says in verse 53 that this incorruptible must put on, this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, that this mortal has put on immortality, that then uh, shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? That literally as we pass on our, uh, from this life to the next, that the, the death that consumed us is swallowed up by life. That life clothes us and, and, and protects us and takes care of us and moves us on into our mansion that Jesus has prepared for us. Now, as we continue in verse 5, now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God. 
So this leads to a couple questions. As we consider life, uh, death being swallowed up by life, the question for most of us is, what does that look like? What What is my resurrected body going to look like? How is it going to function? I, I want to know more about what I'm getting myself into. And, and here's what I would say at the beginning of verse 5. He who has prepared us for this thing is God. You can trust him. You see, if you look out at the beautiful sunsets that we have here, have you ever looked out at that beautiful sunset and the colors in the sky? At any point in time, have you ever gone, you know, Lord, it would have been better if you would have put a little more orange here, maybe a little more blue, move that cloud around, then you would have had it. Then it would have been really good. Or have you gone to the mountains, go to the, the Rockies, for example, and just looked out at the mountain range and gone, man, God, if you would have just moved that peak over a little bit, it would have looked so much better. Absolutely not. How do we look at the ocean or the sunset or the mountain scene, but we go, wow, God, you are some kind of a creator. This is some kind of a landscape. This is some kind of a beautiful handiwork that you have done. We don't have suggestions for God when we look at his handiwork. And yet we question what our heavenly bodies are going to look like. What I would encourage you to do is trust him. Trust him in his track record. Trust what he's got in store. If he can make the heavenly landscape, if he can make the the mountains or the ocean seem so beautiful, what do you think he's going to do with you and I? Mark chapter 7, as Jesus is there on earth, he's healing people. He's, He's actually fixing things that were broken by our own sin our own choice, our own destruction, by the way. As he is healing the mute and the blind and the deaf, in verse 37, and they, the people that were watching all this go down, were astonished beyond measure, saying he has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. In my Bible, I have underlined this. He has done all things as they were watching what Jesus was up to, they were astonished. Just like you and I are at the mountain scene or at the sunset, they were blown away by what he was doing. And their only response was, he has done all things well. And so, when we receive our glorified bodies, I want to assure you this, um, none of you are going to look at that and go, man, I'd really like to have my old tent back. Man, I wish I had that old bag of bones back. You're going to be so very astonished because he does all things well. As we continue in verse 5, Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has also given us the Spirit as a guarantee. And so if question one is, what does our resurrected body look like? And we can answer that by looking at his handiwork. Question two is, how then do I know that I'm going to get there? What's my guarantee? What's my promise that he's going to not leave me here or forsake me? How do I know that I know that he's going to take care of me into eternity? And here's what Paul says. is he who has given us his spirit as a guarantee. And the word guarantee is, is similar to that of an engagement ring in our culture. What, what men know is that we, we go out and spend a tremendous amount on an engagement ring. and We give it to the one that we're giving a promise to uh, because... They matter because that one means something. They are important to us. And understand that this is you and I as it relates to Jesus, our bridegroom. He has given his very life. He has been broken on our behalf. He has given to us 
his spirit as a guarantee, as a engagement ring, a promise that he's going to see this thing all the way through. He's not going to give up on the commitment that he's made to you and I because he's given us his spirit as a promise. And in fact, what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 is this, verse 13, In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. What Paul says to the Ephesians is, the Spirit is given to you as a down payment. He has given His Spirit to you as a down payment that He's going to see this transaction all the way through to the very end. And so in that promise, you can have hope. And the hope isn't like, well, I hope after service today I get a cheeseburger. The hope is that I have this blessed assurance. I have this Holy Spirit guarantee. And as He comes into my life and He lives in me, I can see Him working all around me. I see the effects, the the fruit of what he is up to. And not only do I see it all around me, but as I invite him in to cleanse me from the inside out, I see him working in me. I see him doing things in me that I didn't see before. And I'm not what I someday will be, but here's the beautiful thing. I'm sure not what I once was. <laughs> he's working this thing out. From glory to glory, He's he is cleaning me up from the inside out. Verse 6 as we wrap up this morning. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Verse 8, we are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. And so Paul's desire for us is that we should have confidence, not fear. So often when we talk about death, and we even consider it, it's, it's fear that creeps up in us, fear of the unknown. But he is giving us this promise of the known and what he is trying to encourage us in. And, and you see this reflected in Paul's life is that he was not fearful of death. Paul looked at this and realized he's just transitioning from one life to the next. It's a move from one body. In fact, it's a promotion. It's a job promotion. <clears throat> and so we see as Paul has his life and his operations as he explains this to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live on in this flesh, this I this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose I cannot tell, for I am hard pressed between the two, having a desire, uh, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Verse twenty four. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needed for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you for your progress and joy of faith. What Paul says is, look, this is a tough call. I, I don't know whether I want to be present here with you and be an encouragement or to be home with Jesus. Because to be with Him, this is far better. This is no more pain, no more suffering. But what he knew is his being around, the Lord keeping him around a little bit longer, he was able to be an encouragement for others. He was able to actually lead others in their relationship with Christ himself or lead others to the Lord. And so he knew, he was confident. He didn't have to be fearful for what it was going to be because he had a great confidence to know to be with the Lord was so much better. And yet he still had work to do. He still had fruit that the Lord was actually seeing through his 
labor. And what was that fruit? But it was people. It was lives. It was souls. It was it was changes happening in families and in relationships. So what Paul communicates here in this final verse is rather to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And yet he's encouraged to walk by faith. Don't walk by what you see. So when I was thinking through that this week, I was thinking about another man who walked by faith as we wrap up. One, a guy in the Old Testament who had his eyes set on something far better, and I can think of nobody better than Abraham, who in his days, he he had his eyes set on heaven as his prize. And if you look at verse 1, back again really quickly, as Paul says, our earthly house's tent is destroyed. That phrase, to be destroyed, it means uh, struck down. Have you ever heard the the saying, strike down the tents. What Paul's literally saying is these tents are being struck down, moved from one location to the next. And so no one maybe knew what it looked like to strike down the tents and pack up and move more than Abraham. And so Abraham's entire life, you could see it really defined by two different things. One is tents, and the other one is altars. As Abraham was called out from his family to go to this promised land, what we find is it wasn't that he lived in tents because he couldn't afford a house. It wasn't that Abraham was a poor man. In fact, he was exceedingly wealthy, so much so that when his uh, nephew Lot got himself in trouble, Abraham had 318 trained bodyguards that went out with him and laid a whooping on five different kings. I mean, this this guy, he had it together. He was a bad motor scooter in a lot of ways, and yet he didn't uh, take solace in that. He, He knew that while he had all this on earth that didn't really have value to him. His focus was set on what God was actually up to in his life. He had faith in what the Lord had given him as a promise. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtain a good testimony. One such elder was Abraham in verse 8. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going, but by faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Abraham had his focus set on the heavenly scene, even though God had given him this promise. He would said, come out of here. I'm going to give you this promised land. He realized that Abraham never actually physically received that promised land. He dwelt in tents as a foreigner. It was his descendants 400 years later that received the promised land. And yet Abraham, by faith, he was looking towards what God was up to. Never did he construct a permanent structure on this earth except that of an altar. The only thing that Abraham permanently constructed was something that would give God glory, not to give himself glory. So wherever he went, he built an altar, and he gave glory to God from that place. It looked very different for his life than it did his nephew, who was blessed beyond belief because of his relationship with Abraham. And his nephew Lot, we're told, he actually pitched his tent towards Sodom. And not only that, but by the time you get to uh, Genesis chapter 19, Lot had actually moved in. He made his residence there in Sodom. He had set his foundations in a permanent structure for him and his family. And you know that with that story, it played out very, very poorly for the city of Sodom. But I want to point out to you that it wasn't that Lot wasn't a believer. In fact, in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 8, 
For speaking of Lot, that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. That Lot, while he was a believer, he set himself in a place with so much wickedness, permanently fixing this spot that, well, you know, from his story that his family would actually follow on to perilous times. So while Lot was saved, his family was in a far different spot. And I bring this up as a contrast to ask this, where do I put permanent structures at in my life? Am I fixing myself to this place, to this spot that frankly it's going to burn? It's all going to go away. But if I'm building permanent structures here, they're only at best going to be temporary. Or Am I willing to say, I'm going to live this life where I'm dwelling in tents. I'm only here for a short time and constructing altars. Things to actually give glory to God. Things that, by the way, my family after me, if I want to leave behind a legacy, these are things they can follow after and go, God, uh, Dad gave glory to God in this spot. We're going to give glory to God in this spot. They're going to give glory to the one whom glory is due. And, And these are the things that we can leave behind as leaders and husbands and fathers and dads and guys just trying to make it from day to day or ladies trying to just get to the next spot we can leave these kind of permanent structures behind that will actually leave our children with a hope and with a future and something that they can count on that is eternal and so father we thank you and we praise you for cities that aren't made with human hands for the promise of something permanent and better, for the promise of something long-lasting. Eyes not seen, nor has ear heard the things that you have set aside for us, Lord. And yet, so often, I get myself consumed with the temporary. I get myself consumed and tied up with the here and now. Lord, help us to get our eyes fixed on you, off of these temporary circumstances and in a spot where we're looking to build structures of things that actually give you glory and praise and honor. Thank you, Father, for these reminders. Thank you, Lord, for this letter to the Corinthians who was in such a spot of comfort that they could only see they could only see depression and pain and suffering that Paul was going and suffering. And yet, what Paul saw was eternal glory. These things were light and momentary afflictions. So we thank you, Lord, for his story. We thank you, Lord, for this letter. Lord, help us to get our eyes fixed on you. In Jesus' name.